0: Built Not Born, episode four. I am Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode, we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Andrea Terrain. Andrea is a classically trained musician She started off playing the piano, but found her real mojo when she first put the violin in her hand. Andrea teaches violin in the city of Philadelphia. She and I met on the jiu-jitsu mat almost 10 years ago at Balance Studios. Andrea describes the connection between classical music and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Andrea also discusses the challenges of growing up with extroverted parents while being an introverted person. We cover what it's like being a woman training a mostly male-dominated combat sport like jiu-jitsu. We then take a deep dive into our shared experience of suffering knee injuries only a few months apart, what it was like getting surgery, spending months of rehab, watching class in the back, rehabbing our injuries sometimes together during PT sessions, and then breaking that fear factor, what that was like stepping back on the mat to train again. Andrea also shares why a teacher's first priority is to make sure their students become good human beings. Andrea is one of those quiet and humble people that you may not first notice when you walk into a room or step on the mat, but then you quickly realize there's something special there. She's not only unbelievably tough, but she's courageous. She's consistent in her training. She's also one of the kindest and nicest people you'll talk to all week. Then, towards the end of our conversation, Andrea discusses why she has reread Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird 15 to 20 times, and while she still rereads that book every few years, and why the lessons of that book are still relevant in today's society. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool conversations to come, like this one. So, please, Enjoy my conversation with Andrea Terrain, classical music teacher, student of jiu-jitsu and humble badass. And remember, life is built, not born. Andrea Terrain, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Uh, so excited to have you on. Long time no speak. Yeah, right. How's everything going?
1: Pretty good. How about for you? Is that a home gym? This
0: is COVID, not all horrible. It forced us to... Put a mat and a picture of Elio in the basement. So it's our okay. 10 by 10 training center. And then my daughter's toys are behind it. So it's kind of a playroom, jujitsu room. Awesome. So, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, who are you and what do you do?
1: I am Andrea, and I am a violinist. <laughs> That who also is. does jujitsu.
0: <laughs> Not often do you hear jujitsu and violin in the same sentence, but we're going, to see, we're, we're going to see how they're related. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up right here in Philadelphia. I grew up in West Philly, actually over by Penn and Drexel.
0: Take us back to say 10 years old. What was it like around the dinner table for you? What did that look like?
1: When I was ten, it was me, my sister, my dad, my mom, and my grandmother. My grandmother, who was from, it was my dad's mom. And they were from North Carolina originally, and so my grandmother came to live with us permanently when I was nine, and she lived with us until she died when I was fifteen. My dad was an only child for my grandmother. My dad was it. He was her baby, and we were as a result, her only grandchildren. So she didn't spoil us, but it was kind of a really special relationship that we had with
0: her. What brought them from North Carolina to Philly?
1: My dad was black man. My mom is a white woman. So my dad grew up really poor in North Carolina and he was injured when he was 13. Like he couldn't bend his left leg. His bones were fused together through this injury. And so he missed a year and a half of high school, and then he had to work really hard to catch up with the rest of his class. And then he graduated valedictorian, and he received a full scholarship to any university or college he wanted to go, and he chose to go to Howard. So that brought Mm -hmm. him from North Carolina to Washington, D.C. He just kept moving north. And then when he finished at Howard, he knew we had family here in Philadelphia already, so he decided to keep coming north and come up to Philadelphia and then he worked as an architect. My, my dad was an architect. He became an architect at the Naval Yard for a yeah. few years. And then he got hired at one of the largest architectural firms in Philadelphia.
0: My dad worked at the Naval Yard forever. Small world, but they crossed paths. I don't know if they wrestled on the ground with each other, but I mean they probably crossed paths. <laughs> I don't know if they tried to submit each other, but they sure. definitely probably crossed paths. What was the most vivid memory of your childhood?
1: My parents were really extroverted people. I am not. I'm a very introverted person, so, like, they would just drag us around everywhere. Everybody knew my parents. Everybody knew my dad. I think that's the most thing, like, just being dragged everywhere, being thrown into all these different kind of environments.
0: And That's hard. Yeah. That's not the easiest thing. My, my wife and I are pretty outgoing. We have family members that are introverted. And it, it's an interesting mix when they're done talking. or It's an interesting dynamic where it's, it's sometimes hard to get on the same page and make both sides happy.
1: Yeah. I mean, my parents, they always wanted to go out to parties. They always, you know, they were performers. Mm-hmm. Even though my dad was an architect, my mom was a music teacher, but they were always, whenever there was an opportunity to perform, they were up in front of everybody performing whether it be singing and because my sister and I grew up playing instruments you know I grew up playing piano and then violin and my sister was the same way we would go to different places and put on shows you know my mom would play the piano my dad would sing and then I would play a piece on the piano and then my sister and I would sing a song with my dad it was like this whole thing and after a while you know that can only be maintained for so long when you're an introverted kid and you start to rebel against that. And when I was around, yeah, I guess around the age of 10, I started retreating more into my shell and saying to my parents, no, (laughs) they'd have parent people come over for dinner. And after dinner, you know, they'd go into the living room and then my dad would be like, and now Andrea's going to play her violin for you. And I would just put my foot down. Like, no, no, I will not. Well, the piano was not my choice. So my mom is a pianist and we had a big grand piano in the house. And so my sister wanted to play piano when she was five. And because my sister wanted to do it, they just threw me into piano lessons, too. And it was kind of the same way for a lot of other things like ballet. My sister wanted to take ballet, so I had to take ballet. I wanted to do judo, believe it or not but I was not allowed to do judo. My dad was very progressive in much of his thinking, except for when it came to girls and sports. So he would let me play non-contact sports. Like I could play softball. There's no tackling, you know, but when it came to something like judo, that was a big no, even though I begged, please, 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 no. So I had to do ballet. Violin, I chose on my own. If you look at my trajectory as a human being, whatever I chose for myself, I tend to stick with. Whatever is chosen for me, I'll do for a short period of time and then I reject it. And that's what happened with piano. It happened with ballet. It happened with swimming. It happened with many things. I didn't want to initially do it. I do it for a little while and then I, I ask to stop. And I keep asking until I'm allowed to stop. And violin, I asked for myself. And notice, I still do it till today. And same thing with jujitsu. Jujitsu kind of came about from way back here when I was nine years old asking to do judo. And it kind of never left my brain until one day when I was old enough and had the money to pay for it myself, I decided to do jujitsu.
0: I want to follow up on the jujitsu thing in a moment. Violin. So when you first put the violin in your hand, what did you feel? How so?
1: Just because it was a desire. I saw other people doing it, and I wanted that. When the, the string teacher at my school came into the room, and she asked at the beginning of the school year, I was in fourth grade, she asked if anybody wanted to play a string instrument, and she put the names of the instruments on the board, violin, viola, cello, bass. And my hand shot straight up in the air. And that's very unlike me. You know, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. But my hand shot straight up in the air. And that's because my parents always had on classical music. They always had, at the time, on PBS, they would show the Philadelphia Orchestra on TV. And they would have the music on the radio station at the same time. So my parents would have the radio station on and the TV on, you know, full stereo sound, and I would just watch the violins play because they're on the edge of the stage, and you can see all of them, and they move in unison. And I just thought it was a beautiful thing.
0: How difficult was it to learn, say, first six months of violin?
1: Not that difficult, but <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't do it well. I didn't practice. And that's because it was group lessons at my school, and the teacher didn't really pay that much attention to me. And the reason she didn't pay that much attention to me was because I already knew how to read music because I had been playing piano since I was four. And my mom's a music teacher. I could already read music. I knew basically everything that was on the page. I just didn't know how to hold the the, the violin. She had kids who didn't know anything, right? Didn't know how to read music, didn't know how to hold a violin. So she stuck the violin under my face, stuck the bow in my hand, gave me an idea pointed at the music on the page, said, there's D, (laughs) there's A. (laughs) And she left me to figure it out on my own while she worked with the other kids. So I thought I was doing a great job. Scratch, 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 scratch. And I was doing a terrible, and so I didn't practice. And I was doing a terrible job in reality because I would come home, I would put the violin on the floor, I'd walk away from it, and then (laughs) when I had to bring it to school, I'd go and I'd pick it up. And I'd carry it to school, and I'd do it at school, and I never practiced. But at the end of that year, I left that school and went to a different school. And the school I went to was Masterman, actually, down here in Philly, one of the greatest schools there is. And they had a really amazing violin program there. And my sister was already at that school and was playing violin with the teacher there. And my parents asked if we could have summer lessons. And at first, my teacher was like, oh, no, you know, I don't really like taking on another kid who started under another teacher. But my parents were like, you're already teaching our other kid. Just add Andrea in. And so she did. And then I took off. Because she fixed me. She fixed me because I had one-on-one lessons. She fixed me. So I played correctly. And then I just kind of took off. Yeah. And it wasn't, it still wasn't hard. It got hard later. How so? The more advanced you get, the more detail-oriented you have to become. My brain... Some kids are more detail-oriented at a young age. My brain, when I was 8, nine, ten years old, only semi-detail-oriented. If it, a lot of things came easily to me when I was young. And this was one of the things that came easily to me. And so when it became difficult... I would get frustrated and then I would resist doing it. I didn't want to quit, but I would resist doing it. I would resist having to do all the mental breakdown because all of a sudden it was hard work. Why isn't this just easy for me? Like everything else has been easy. And that that's also kind of a trait that I've maintained throughout my life too. that that happened with every subject. If it got difficult, I would resist things that are non-technical where you're reading books, where you're just remembering things, easy for me. Things that are more physical and you have to really think about, more difficult.
0: How you described violin, you could just take violin out and put jujitsu in. Everything you say with violin is true with jujitsu. It's fun when you start, then it gets more technical, then it gets hard, and then you get frustrated, and like that dip comes in, and you're like, Oh, do I, well, you never want to quit, like, but you're like, wow, I got to work at this, or this is going not going to be a good experience. H- how do you see violin and jujitsu kind of microcosms of each other?
1: I have seen them connected since I started. Since the day I walked onto the mat and started, some things were easy. And some things <laughs> made you want to <laughs> tear your hair out. Yeah, especially when you start, Putting the rolling in. Just learning the techniques. Like I could drill all day long. I do that kind of stuff on my violin. Take some little thing and work it to death. Whether it be a technical passage on the violin, or if you're figuring out how to put your hands and do the motion for a Kimura or whatever, right? I could figure that out all day long. But doing that in the moment while other things are happening and you're rolling.
0: Like the person saying, no, you're not giving my arm back or, you know what I mean? Or they're doing something to counter it. I know Josh in his classes at the end, uh, situational sparring, he calls it. Well, okay, you're doing a Kimura, but there's resistance. And at first it's a little resistance, then it's a whole lot. You know, you go to a point like, wow, like I can't do this move when this type of, this person does this type of resistance and you got to get an answer for that, or it just doesn't become a good experience. Then the frustration builds, you got to like knock the obstacles out one at a time all right if he puts his hand here and yeah it is amazing just when you were describing the violin it's it's jiu-jitsu you're describing and when you're describing jujitsu, jitsu you're describing the violin it's
1: the one thing that's different between jiu-jitsu and playing an instrument is an instrument like if you're practicing a piece because i'm not an improviser if i were a jazz musician i think rolling in jiu-jitsu would come easier to me Okay. Because improvisation is all about feeling out what's happening in the moment and going with the flow. As a classical musician, you practice what's on the page. Like I have music sitting here behind me. You practice what's on the page. And then when you go to perform and you play with other people, there really are no surprises. There are no twists. You're just playing what's on the page, what you've practiced. But you're doing it under stress because now people are watching you, mm-hmm. right? and listening to you and so you you don't want to make mistakes or whatever but jujitsu is nothing but being in the moment it's improvisation and i think that's why i get tangled up into knots because i am not a good improviser
0: (laughs) i think you're better than you think but it it, i think that's the gift of jujitsu where it forces you to improvise to some degree where you're like oh i have a game plan i'm going to do this then i'm going to do that and then as soon as you try to do step one they throw something at you that you have to go totally off script right or you're in a really bad spot forces you to improvise in the moment but still have a concept of where you are and like what can come next and what can't come next it's a, it's a life skill such a life skill
1: it really is it's it's opened my mind in that respect in a lot of ways right that mm-hmm. you can't get comfortable <laughs> cuz you're going to be uncomfortable. You're, you are going to be in an uncomfortable position. And what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond to that?
0: Someone said this once years ago and it just stuck with me. Like the gift of jujitsu, it makes you comfortable and uncomfortable situations. Sean Nesbitt, like good buddy of mine, he's got to have 60 pounds on me. Easy. And, like, and he's really good. I mean, he's good. You're in a bad spot with him within the first two, three minutes. That's the most uncomfortable thing that will happen to me all week. You know, and he's really good and he's trying to grab your arm for a Kimura. And no matter what happens the rest of the day at work or at home, it's not that bad. (laughs) There's nothing that's that not uncomfortable. You have someone who's so like talented and strong and technical and it helps you keep your mind. Like, All right, what can I do? I can grab my leg. I could shrimp out a little bit. I could reduce the angle or reduce his leverage. Little iterations you can do. And then like, I guess when like life comes at you in outside of jujitsu or violin, what minor move can I make to give myself a little bit better spot? Can I get up earlier or go to bed later? There's little iterations you can do. And I think that's what the gift of like an instrument or jujitsu teaches you. You went to temple. How how did you decide to go there?
1: Well, I went there for graduate school. I was away for undergrad. I went to school in upstate New York and... I kind of missed home. I mean, I, I applied to some other places, but when I auditioned at Temple, I really connected. I liked the teacher and how she worked with me there, and it was at home, so I wouldn't have to figure out where to live at, at first. I When I came back home for my first year of graduate school, I lived at my dad's house, which wasn't that great as an adult. <laughs>
0: Now, yeah, say, after exactly. you leave college, after you come out of college, it's time to get your own place. It, it, it yeah. really is. It, it really, I lived home for about six months, maybe a year. I don't know. I forget about a year, roughly. And it, it just was a completely different experience where like, that was your home that you left. And then when college is over, you're living in your parents' house. It goes from your home to your parents' house on the other side of college. It's, I
1: totally agree. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. You've had four years of being your independent adult self, and then you come back home, and all of a sudden, you're back in the room that you grew up in, and your parents are treating you like that kid that used to live at home. And so, yeah, it it was not a good situation. Even my dad agreed Mm -hmm. that I needed to get out. (laughs) Really terrible relationship that year, and it improved the moment I moved out.
0: Sure. I remember my childhood room, Eagles and Phillies and Dr. J pictures. Like, I remember my room when I was little, Mike Mike Schmidt, like all my childhood idols were there. After I came back from college, I'm like, this is not my room anymore. I felt like it's a museum. I should pay an admission and walk around in circles and leave.
1: (laughs) That's a very good analogy. I agree with that 100%. Yeah.
0: How'd you first decide to walk on to the jujitsu mat?
1: That was a big, big decision. I had been going out with somebody who was, who was very into martial arts. He was a black belt in karate. He had multiple degrees. And he experimented with jiu-jitsu. He, he dabbled a little bit in jiu-jitsu. And he was practicing kali, which is the Filipino stick fighting. And he would show me moves every now and then. I'd already been intrigued because, like I said, I still had this desire to do judo back here in my brain from when I was a kid. I'd always wanted to do some sort of martial art. And I had thought about karate. It didn't really appeal to me anymore. And this is, I was 39 at the time. And we broke up. I didn't have him in my life anymore to show me little moves here and there. And I said to myself, you know what? I don't need him. I can go do this on my own. I can find a place on my own and, and do this. And so, yeah, I opened up my computer. I went to Google and I Googled, I didn't Google jujitsu. I Googled self-defense for women. Because I thought maybe that would be a better place for me to start. Sure. And believe it or not, balance was not at the top of the list, I think it might have been second, but it was one of the first or second places that popped up on Google. So I looked at the two or three different places that were at the top of the list, and for some reason, I think Balance was not the closest, because at the time there was another jujitsu place that's... I live in Queen Village, South Philly. There was another place that said like fourth and Bainbridge. It's within walking distance of my house, but it didn't sound as appealing to me as the description at Balance. I decided to call up Balance and the person who answered the phone was Drew.
0: <laughs> Perfect. And we
1: all know how awesome <laughs> Drew is. So within two minutes of talking to him, I had already decided I had decided. I was hey, like, this sold. is the place I'm gonna go.
0: Do you remember? Your first lesson?
1: I do. It was on a Saturday because it was in the summer. I can't normally go on Saturdays because I'm teaching, but during the summer I could go on Saturday. So I went on Saturday to the beginner class, the basics class, and I met Drew and he showed me around the place. And of course, Drew being Drew is very sweet, very open, very welcoming, right? And then he showed me where to get changed. And then he walked me over to the mat where I was going to take my first class, and that class was taught by Brian Bentley, who's another amazing person. And at the time, he was a he was a brown belt at the time, not yet a black belt. Taught such a great class, so amazing, that at the end of the class, I walked off the mat, and Drew asked me if I had fun, and I was like, "Yeah, that was fun, yes, I will be back, yes, and yes, and yes, and when can I sign up? And that's when I went in and I signed up all the paperwork and everything but yeah that was a great first experience
0: one thing with drew i love He's a point where it gets hard and and you gotta it gets technical and i just remember i'm a blue belt and i think i was getting worse i was going like three times a week and mostly ricardo's class and there were a bunch of killers in there and and i'm just getting smashed week after week after week and i would just go get my ass kicked and go home and do like four or five rounds and just get beat out. Like, what am I doing? I was so frustrated after one class, like the same people submitted me doing the same things. And I just sat on the side and I don't know if Drew noticed it. Or I don't know if I went to him, but we just started talking. And I'm like, this is what's going on. I go, he's like, listen, you got too much in your head. Come to my basics class. You need to simplify it. There's too much going on. You got like 50% of hundred moves. He goes time to get like three or four moves down really good. And just come to my basic class. So I just started going to his basics class and just started going. I think it was Tuesdays or whatever it was. Tuesdays That, that
1: must be when I met you because yeah. I went to Drew's Tuesday basic class. Like that's work.
0: Yep. And that's that's where I met you. And he had that loyal following at his Tuesday basic class. Yeah. Wouldn't you know, the simpler I got and the more focused I got, for me in my little world, the better I got. Not saying I was good, relatively speaking, because the, the good is so relative term, but for me, my game improved as i simplified and focused So you would think like more is better like heel hook baron bolo like spinning guard pass like that's where i suck right but if you go like hey we're bumping and rolling then we're doing elbow escape from bump and roll like it's just little things like that and then then we're going to add like a, like you know a guard pass and like just 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 putting on bolting on basic moves and showing how they're all connected and doing it slow gradually over a long period of time, blew my mind and changed my game. You take a picture that his basics class, if you look at that time frame, you could go two years later and the majority of the class is the same on Tuesday. If you go like an iPhone photo, I'll make it up like 2013. Then you go 2015, two years later, which is an eternity in a martial arts school, how quick the turnover is, it's the same six, seven people in the same class two years before. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. All partnered up with each other still at the same point. It's a testament to him and I guess that teaching style. Oh, yeah.
1: I kept going to Drew's class, you know, when he was like, okay, you don't have to take this. Well, they they never say you don't have to take this anymore. But, you know, they open it up. Now you can take Mm -hmm. the the more advanced classes, right? The mixed belt classes. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to keep coming because I realized just how important, just like in music, you don't stop playing scales just because you learned it five years ago. You warm up with scales every single time you pull your instrument out of the case. I don't care if you've been playing for five years or 50 years. So I was like, I'm gonna keep going to fundamentals class because everything builds off of that. Like you were saying, the stronger your basics are, the more you realize how the more difficult moves connect to all that stuff, right? So yeah, I went to Drew's class for until he left, basically from the time I started until he left.
0: That great picture of you, Amyo, me, Sean, like that last class before they moved on to Seattle. I think that it's one of my favorite balance pictures where there's that group of like core group of like a dozen people, maybe six or seven were there for years. That's one of my favorite pictures. One thing we both share besides we live in Philly and we train jujitsu is we both decided it's a good idea to have a major knee surgery and get injured. And for those who can't see, we're both covering our face. <laughs> both on the same mat. I think I was in the class where you got hurt. I think it happened about 10 feet apart. It wasn't um, even
1: a couple of years apart, Joe. I think like as apart. I was coming back,
0: got you hurt. got injured, right? But you were just coming back. And not only that, we had the same surgeon. I went to your surgeon and walk us through. So you're doing this as a hobby. I remember the move, right? So you take me through that class. What's going through your mind?
1: Uh, We were doing takedowns, and I know it was a, a back takedown, like grabbing the leg from behind. So Rick had shown it as the technique for the day, and then he did King of the Hill. And I got up there. It was my turn. I think I successfully went through once, and then it was my second time through. And I know exactly who I was paired with, but I won't say who it was. A higher (laughs) belt than me. I was blue belt at the time. It was a purple belt. Yeah, we got our legs entangled. And I was maybe being, I'll put some of the blame on myself. I'll put some of it. I won't put all the blame on him. You know, I didn't want to go down as we get stubborn sometimes, I didn't want to go down. I fought a little bit too hard against, but then he pulled the wrong direction and my knee, my leg kind of went like that. <laughs> like my foot oh. went one direction and my thigh went the other. Like they just twisted. <gasps> and I heard the pop.
0: That's awful. That's so bad. That awful? Oh, I felt it. I hear it. I still feel <laughs> it. Like you remember it. Like yeah, I check all the boxes.
1: Yep. And I just crumpled to the mat. I started laughing. I think I was shocked. The pain hadn't quite hit me yet, but I knew that I heard the pop. I felt the pop. I knew something bad had happened. I started laughing. And I remember hearing somebody on the side of the mat ask, is she laughing? They're like, is she, is she okay? I went to stand and I knew I couldn't stand up. Like I could not stand up. I felt the knee like this. Like it was not connected completely anymore.
0: And that feeling when you try to get back up, like, oh, I just sprained it or whatever, it's my knee just cracked, like you cracked your knuckles, like, ah, just popped over. Now I'm fine. And you get up and you feel. Your upper, like your knee, like like move in ways it shouldn't. Like it's like not connected. Yeah,
1: it's not connected. And you,
0: you, it's like this, like wobble. Like it's like it's it's bouncing around in ways it should not. You've never felt before. And then you just go right back down.
1: Exactly. Like
0: boom, like sniper. Boom, back yes. down.
1: I was like, nope, can't <laughs> walk, can't do it. And Rick came over and he dragged me off the mat. And that's when he told me he thought he said I think it's your meniscus. He sat there and he felt around and he said he thought it was my meniscus and it was partially my meniscus. It was partial. It was a, a flipped meniscus. a partially torn ACL and a, a fractured tibia.
0: So, all you, three things. Wow! If you're going to go, go big. Why, why go small? When they fixed it up, what did they wind up fixing? What did they do
1: in the surgery? Yeah. Well, Doctor Dodson, your surgeon as well. The man. He flipped the meniscus back. It was a bucket handle tear, so he just had to flip it back. But while he was in there, he didn't have to repair the ACL because it wasn't fully torn like yours. He forced a bleed. And I have all the nasty pictures he from the surgery. <laughs> I don't know if he gave them to you, but I have all the gross pictures. But he forced a bleed to get it to heal itself. Okay. And then, yeah, I was in a brace for two months to fix the tibia because that couldn't be fixed through surgery. It had to it had to heal, you know, like when you have a broken bone, mm-hmm. it had to heal itself. So I had to be in a brace so that my leg would heal straight and not crooked.
0: What was the rehab like?
1: It wasn't as long as yours. I think your rehab took a little bit longer. Mine was about four months. Okay. Yours was longer than that, right?
0: It's about a year. Yeah, it was 10 months to the mat. And then like before I started, like we all have little weird things we do. I keep a, pay, a line a day journal. And it's a five-year journal. You write like one line. It's, it's good for like one sentence or two short sentences of what happened that day. I just finished one. And it was from 2015 to 2020. I get to look back five years. 2015 is when I guess we both decided it was a good year to blow our knees out. <laughs> like the first time I actually... Took a class, not stepped on the map, but like literally I'm in class, I'm training. It was like literally a year to the surgery. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, it's a long time. What made you come back? And did you ever consider not coming back?
1: I did not ever consider not coming back. It just didn't even, it maybe flashed through my head for a second, right? I'm not coming back to jujitsu. I was like, what? That's nuts. (laughs) And it was gone. (laughs) Never thought about ever again. Part of that is my own stubbornness. I'm very stubborn. And like I said, if it's something I choose to do, I follow through on it. The fact that I walked through the door and kept going after that first class meant that I was going to stay on this path. And the injury was a little bump in the road, but the path didn't diverge, right? It kept going. And I had a lot of help from Rick, like I said. When I first came back, he kept messaging me and telling me, he said, when you come back, let me know when you come back. He said, I'm going to give you exercises to do. And the first, and I was doing physical therapy. I was doing my PT. But on top of that, I would come to class. I wouldn't be dressed in a gi. You know, it was Rick's gi classes. But I wouldn't be dressed in a gi. I'd come in, you know, a pair of, jogging shorts and a t-shirt and he would put me on the side of the mat, show the technique for the class, and he'd be like, Y'all work on that. And then he would come over to me and show me an exercise and tell me to do it like 30 times and I'll be back. And then he'd go back over to the class and walk around and help and then show the next thing he was going to show to the class and then he'd come back over to me. It was this interesting little he did not have to do that.
0: There was one where you just got back. And I think I just had mine. I was watching a class, and he's like, "Oh, my PT group's here or something." And I would go. I I I sat next as you were doing your. You were way ahead of me on the rehab curb, but I was sitting there like doing leg lifts while you were sitting there doing like more advanced stuff. And he gave us stuff to do on the side as we're watching, like just stepping on the mat, walking into the building remember I still had a knee brace on full knee brace where I would watch class like two, three months after surgery, just to watch because you always hear Elio watched when he was a young kid purposely step on the mat. And I'm going to watch class sitting on the mat, like 10 feet away from everybody, just like to break that mental barrier of getting back on the mat. I'm kind of back on the field, I'm not in the game, but like I went out for the coin toss, be out there and 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 make it not weird to be there. That's yeah. a mental barrier that I think it helps you get over.
1: Totally. Yeah, no, I did the same thing. I would come and I would watch class. I would watch Drew's class. But yeah, when I really came back, Rick is the one who really put me off to the side. And it's funny. There were a bunch of us who had the knee injury. It was me and Fred also had, he had meniscus surgery. So he was doing some of his exercises with me because he was like, oh, you're doing that? I was like, yeah. Rick's doing this for me. And then you I was like, I remember
0: Dotson, oh one of my appointments with Dotson, he might've just saw Fred. I don't know what it was. He goes, one more balanced person comes to He goes, I'm going to set up office hours in that studio. It's all like two or three of us within a week of each other. So funny. What was it like when you're back? Like that first time you got knocked down. Do you remember that? Like the first like tested it. What was that like? Terrifying. Yeah, it's it's a gut check. It's
1: really it's terrifying. Yeah,
0: it's so mental. Like there's a point where you know you have to test it, and you're there, and it's either someone pushes you down, or maybe they do a sweep, or maybe you're in the guard and someone like pushes your knee down hard. And like, what do you think?
1: I was scared, but I I feel like enough people knew. I would tell people, but enough people knew. That's the the one. (laughs) positive about being a woman in jujitsu is there are so few of us and at the time I think there were even fewer women than there are now everybody knew who I was and what had happened to me and if they didn't they soon found out (laughs) because Rick would say something or Josh or Drew somebody would say something being like don't touch her right knee don't touch her right knee rick and phil have been so good to me especially i'm sure you can relate especially when i got injured Mm -hmm. right oh yeah, yeah rick was amazing you know even if i didn't say it for myself they'd be like be really careful with her right knee and and so but so many of the guys knew i remember when i came back not when i took class but i was sitting on the side so many guys never spoke to me before joe That's the reality of being a woman in jujitsu. A lot of guys are afraid of women. I don't know if it's afraid or intimidated or they, they're, they're, I think they're afraid of hurting us. They, they see women in a different way than they see men. But so many guys who were not willing to really talk to me or roll with me before my injury stopped and spoke to me after my injury because I came back. I think they expected me to be injured and then just disappear. And they would never see me again, but I came back and I kept coming back. And then I turned into Rick's little pet because I was over here on the mat being given exercises by him. That changed my dynamic at, at uh, balance a little bit.
0: If you look at that, that you were such an anomaly. One, you're a female, like you just said, there's not many of you, at least at the time. That, that A, show up to train. But then say a couple show up, they show up for the two-week trial or the 30-day trial, then they never come back. They take three classes and don't come back. You join, go, literally have a major knee injury that requires surgery and like months of rehab. And the odds of that female joining, getting her knee injured and then coming back to train, it's less than 1%. Right. I mean, it's, it's like point, you're in like the point- five percent of the population that's uh, remarkable right uh, and I
1: think that's why so many guys would stop and say something to me I mean I was just sitting on the side of the mat and they they would stop never spoke to me before and be like I'm so sorry about your injury (laughs) or they would just say something anything to me when they were walking past me
0: that is so remarkable I think just it's instant respect wow like much props much respect, and like that person gets your respect, and like I have to go over and talk to her. Ones that wouldn't do it before because you're like, what a baller! I mean, what a baller! Now, really good. Thanks for sharing that. I want to shift gears a little bit here. But what makes you think? What makes you tick? Is there a book that, or an author that's influenced you or changed your mind more than anyone else?
1: There is a book that I reread every couple of years. Oh, that's it. That's exactly- <laughs> I've read it at least. 10, 12 times in my life, and I'll probably read it again next year or the year after. So, Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee.
0: What makes that book connect with you?
1: I don't I just feel the need to reread it every few years just because there's something about it. And I saw the movie when I was a kid. I saw the movie before I read it. And the movie is a classic. It's one of those movies that is just as good as the book, I would say. And that's a rarity. And it's because it really is a reflection of the book. My opinion of it has slightly changed over the years because I can approach it now as kind of, and I hate to say this, as a white savior kind of book. Atticus Mm -hmm. Finch, Mm -hmm. you know, he is the white savior. He kind of had to be because people of color didn't have the power to save themselves, right? Mm -hmm. One questions whether or not they they do even now right we need help from our white allies but you know i am the daughter of a black man i am half black myself and and that book is all about this one small town in i believe south carolina i think it's south carolina see all these times i've read the book and i this is why i have to go back and reread it every few years but you know this black man is put on trial for something he did not do. He's Mm -hmm. accused of raping this white woman.
0: Mm -hmm. And then, and then Atticus agrees to defend him despite like the community, like, like threat giving him threats. At one point, I think he even faces like a mob, like, like the mob comes to him and tries to lynch him because he refuses to abandon this person as a client.
1: They, they try to lynch the client. They try to, and Atticus puts himself out. He sits himself out in front of the jail. Okay. To prevent them from coming. To, to lynch him. And at the end of the story, the client is murdered anyway, because, yeah, he's murdered by, murdered. Well, he's gunned down by the sheriff because he's fleeing, right? He's escaping. And so he's shot. It has a lot of, you know, the, the resonance it has now is different than it had when I was. However old I was when I first read it, thirteen, fourteen, But the world has, you know, shifted a little bit. And so if you compare it to things that are in the news now, mm-hmm. like the George Floyd, the trial of Derek Chauvin that's happening right now, it, there's a lot of really kind of frightening
0: tie-in. hmm ryan holiday is an author i I really like to read he writes on stoicism and the the one thing in stoicism is the world's a flat circle where the names and places and maybe style and technologies are different but the same things just keep keep happening again and again like it just keep it's a circle it's just like the you know someone's falsely accused and there's racism there's bias there's you know not a fair trial and People make their mind up before they should and, and and they have preconceived notions. One thing outside of like the important part of what the book's about, Harper Lee is one of that rare people that wrote their first book and became a star and never wrote anything again because she can never write anything that good again. It's like that Dexie's Midnight Runners, like that. Come on, Eileen. It's like <laughs> that one hit and you never hear from them again. It's like that one mega hit and they're they're she did that one amazing book and she never wrote anything again. It's it's crazy. Yeah. How do you know it's time to re- read that book again? I don't sure know. I
1: just, I just feel it. Somewhere in my body, I feel it. And I see it on my bookshelf, and I just reach for it.
0: That, thank you for sharing that. That is, I knew there would be an amazing book that you would pull out. Good. How about this? When you are at your best, what are you doing? Teaching. What are you teaching?
1: Violin.
0: What type of values do you try to pass on to your students?
1: Kindness compassion right i think music is secondary music is great you know any skill that you can work at and it helps you music is a great way to learn problem solving kind of the same way jujitsu is right you can calm down your brain break down whatever it is you're working on into small pieces and then figure out how it all works together that's problem solving but at the heart of it right? If you're being selfish in that, you're not helping yourself. And so like I try and turn my students, whether they be in a group class like this morning or one-on-one, which is what I also do mostly, is to convey my kindness to them and my understanding and my patience so that they turn that around and they treat others that same way. So I I feel like, yes, teaching music is great and everything, but my first job as a teacher is to teach kids how to become good human beings, right? Mm -hmm. For the most part, I've been very successful with that in my career. I think all the kids who have come through... Being my students. And I, you know, when I teach privately, one-on-one, I tend to keep my students for a good 10 years. If they start with me when they are on average 7 or 8 years old, they stay with me all the way through high school.
0: They get their blackout from you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So one of my students, as an example, is graduating this year. He's a senior in high school and he's been with me since he he was 8. And he's just a wonderful young man. He is just the most wonderful young person. And I can say that about every kid that has graduated. They are just really good people, kind, intelligent, caring individuals, not selfish. And I think that, not to give myself too big a pat on the back, because that also has to do with their parents and their upbringing at home. But I think that if you can be that kind of strong influence in a young person's life, that goes a long way. And being a teacher who is the only teacher who stays with a kid for that length of time, I I feel like it's a big responsibility on my part to, to help turn them into these good people.
0: Your students are lucky to have you. Two more questions. One, what is your personal definition of success?
1: I don't need a lot to feel successful. I guess that's what it is. I don't need a ton of money. That's never been my goal. Just to be comfortable, and I've had a lot of good luck in my life. A lot of things have fallen into my lap, and I'm I'm not talking about like a job that pays me <laughs> tons of money. But as an example, when COVID hit and everything shut down, my school shut down and went online. I have one-on-one students, and they all pay individually, and it's through a school. And some of them fell off the map for whatever reason, it happened across the board, you know. Parents couldn't afford it anymore, parents lost their jobs, parents were just too stressed out trying to figure out how to run their lives from home, their kids, school, and everything. My income became at risk as a result. Just like that, over the summer, one of my very dear friends offered me a job. I was trying to figure out in my head what to do. She offered me this position at the school teaching third grade violin, and it became a huge relief. So I feel for my, for my life, I've had a lot of success because I've had a lot of luck. And maybe it's not luck, I have just have these really good connections with all the people that I have in my life. You included, you know, oh, all these people you. who you, you cross paths with and you make connections with. And they, they add to your life in all these positive ways. Yeah. I feel like my life has been very successful because I have all these wonderful people.
0: Feeling is mutual. Thank you. If you could go back, we started off talking about the dinner table looked like when you were 10 years old, you could go back to that dinner table and talk to the people sitting around that table. What would you like to tell them?
1: How much I love them. Because two of them are gone. My grandmother obviously is gone. She's been gone for a long time. She died when I was 15. But my dad died when I was 31. We don't tell the people who mean what they mean to us. We don't tell people enough. When they're right there in front of us, we don't tell them how much they mean to us when we can, when we should. Right. So
0: true. Yeah, so true.
1: And so I feel like I would tell... And my mom and my sister are still here, but I, I feel like we don't tell the people who are around us enough how they make us feel, how they add to our lives, right?
0: Absolutely. Last question If you could get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that motto or quote say?
1: Oh my God, Joe. <laughs> no practice more. No, I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> that would work. That would definitely fit. That would work. Nice arm tattoo. Practice more.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and and not to be specific about anything, just practice more.
0: I think that's a good spot. Practice. Practice more. That is perfect. Treya. thank you. Phenomenal thank you, speaking to you. Awesome to catch up with you. And I hope to see you live sooner yes. rather than later. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for being on the show and wish you nothing but success.
1: My pleasure. And the same to you.
0: Oh, thank you, Drea.